Hello, and welcome to episode 130 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This week, we bring to you the Big Data panel from our Progressive Mine Forum, held at the Mars Discovery District in Toronto back in October. And this brings to an end the cycle we've had of keynote speeches and panel sessions from the event. The panel members are Talia Dabby. She's the director in the Technology Consulting and People and Organization Practices at PwC. Humera Malik, she's the CEO and founder of Canvas Analytics here in Toronto. Glenn Mullen, he's the president of the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, the PDAC. He's also president and CEO of Golden Valley Mines up in Valdor. We have Gord Stothert. He's the executive vice president and chief operating officer at I Am Gold here in Toronto. And finally, rounding out the panel, we have Shelby Yee. She's co-founder and CEO of Rockmass Technologies. This podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please visit their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and their Twitter feed is at at investyukon. You can head to their website to sign up for newsletters, alerts, and other items. They've been super busy at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, and they'll be at the AIM Roundup uh, next week. At the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, we had Ranj Pillai from the Yukon government. He's the MLA for Porter Creek South, the Deputy Premier, uh, Minister of Energy, Mines and Resources and Economic Development, and the Minister of Yukon Energy and Yukon Development. And he tweeted out that the Yukon government, which backs the Yukon Mine Alliance, is committed to strong industry partnerships. And he's pleased to say the Yukon government will continue to support the Invest Yukon property tours and investment conference this summer in Dawson City, which will showcase some of our top-tiered properties to investors and media from around the world. Another item from the Yukon government, we had uh, Premier Sandy Silver shake up the um, deputy ministries a little bit. We have uh, Stephen Mills. He's DM at the Department of Energy, Mines, and Resources, moving over to be the deputy minister of the Executive Council Office and Cabinet Secretary. Paul Moore will be the new deputy minister with the Department of Energy, Mines, and Resources. The biggest news out of the Yukon in the last week was Fireweed Zinc getting a $5 million private placement and strategic investor. The notable thing here is that uh, Tech is uh, in on the financing. They'll be boosting their stake in Fireweed Zinc from 4.7% to almost 9.9%. And this financing is a mixture of straight shares, flow-through shares, and some of those donation uh, charity flow-through shares. Another bit of news was Alexco Resources has been getting some very nice high-grade results from exploration at their Kino Hill Silver District property. A nice one here, 1,453 grams of silver per ton over 2 meters at 353 meters depth. So that's the kind of nice uh, high-grade silver they're getting there at Alexco. Before we get to our panel, we have a couple of sponsored segments here. We have our fourth and final Mining Minute with Cobalt 27 Capital. This is Anthony Milevsky, chairman and CEO of Cobalt 27 Capital. They're a battery metal streaming and royalty company. And here he gives a little rundown on the people behind the company. First and foremost, we've got Justin Cochran 
who is the president and COO. Justin really spent his career in the royalty business. First, he was an investment banker working on some of the very first streams and royalties. And as the industry evolved, he ended up joining Sandstorm, where he worked on, originated, and closed you know, a lot of the streams and royalties that they have currently today. And so he really brings that depth of experience and structuring and really thinking about how to execute on these transactions. Martin Vidra, on the other hand, is very experienced technically, something like 30 years at Share It, 31 years at Share It, where he was responsible for a host of things, I think, ranging from technology to marketing. And Martin's important, I think, for two reasons. One, when you're looking at a complex nickel project uh, and thinking about how you get the cobalt out, you know, there's a chance that Martin's already worked on that project. And so he brings that depth of knowledge there. And then, you know, he's got the contacts at different levels in these organizations globally. And so it's a, it's a very strong team. And then you combine that with an advisory board. We've got an automobile maker on there. We've got a battery company on there. We've got a range of technical people on there. So, you know, what we've chosen to do is keep the full-time kind of employment to a real minimum. We've got myself, Justin, and Martin, and then have an advisory board that you can kind of reach into and lean on their experience when you're working on particular transactions. One more sponsored item here. This is the final one uh, in our sponsor spotlight segments, we call it. These are brief profiles of the major sponsors of our Progressive Mind Forum in Toronto. This one is with uh, Kirill Mugerman. He's the president and CEO of Geomega Resources. They have rare earths project in Quebec, and they have some innovative processing of uh, rare earths. So uh, Kirill will explain that. My name is Kirill Mugerman. I'm president and CEO of Geomega Resources. Geomega is a, it's a diversified company. We, uh, we both are in the exploration side for natural resources, for rare earth elements. But at the same time, we as well develop clean alternative technologies for refining rare earth elements. Because the conference here the focuses on clean mining and innovation, our approach is Mining has to be clean from the beginning to the end, from the mining operation, the processing, and from the, the refining. In rare earths, unfortunately, all the three uh, stages are done today, not in a clean way. We believe in Canada we can easily introduce the mining, which will be clean, but unfortunately we still have to send everything to China. What we developed over the last five years is a technology for refining those rare earth elements in a clean way, in a sustainable way here in Canada. And that way we don't have to rely on the Chinese processing capacity. Uh, so the technology that we developed, we are now developing through the magnet recycling industry, which are made out of rare earth. So that's the main usage of rare earth elements. And we are using that to scale up our technology, demonstrate that it works, and then uh, increase it to the mining scale. So rare earth elements, it's it's ironic that they are used for clean tech, but to process them, it's actually very complex, one of the most complex chemical processes. And to do that separation, you use solvent extraction, where you use organic solvents. Those organic solvents, they end up making it into the environment, and when they make it into the environment, that becomes a big problem. We want to avoid those organic solvents because bringing that technology to North America, unfortunately, your permitting will be very difficult, and the cost of that plant to be clean in Canada it will become very expensive. So we want to get rid of the organic solvent. We only want to stay within an aqueous 
chemistry, which is much easier to work with, uh, much easier to permit, much easier to demonstrate that it's clean. And we want to change the approach that, uh, that is currently used in China. So over the last five years, we already uh, scaled up significantly the technology. We went from very low concentrations to today uh, over 100 grams per liter of rare earth elements. Our size of the unit went from 30 milliliters in 2014 to today uh, 20 liters. And uh, our target for next year is to hit 200 liters uh, unit uh, capacity per unit. As well, we are focusing on uh, increasing the separation factor which is going to make our technology even more competitive with the Chinese. And as well, for next year, we want to demonstrate 99.9 in higher purities. So all in all, at the same time, as while we are scaling up, we actually want to improve the technology. And one last bit of Northern Miner news uh, before we move into the panel session. We have our Canadian Mining Symposium coming up on May 22nd in London, England at Canada House. And it's always a terrific event. And we have a couple more speakers here, uh, keynote speakers. Already we've announced we have David Harkwell, CEO of Franco Nevada, Steve Letwin, President and CEO of I Am Gold, Ira Thomas, President and CEO of Lucar Gold, and we've added... Peter Moroni, chairman of Yamana Gold here in Toronto. And we also have, uh, just today, we have Mark Bristow. He's president and CEO of Barrett Gold, newly installed in that position. So that should be a very interesting talk. So if you're not involved with the Canadian Mines Symposium, try to get involved because it's going to be another uh, blowout event. Now let's move on to the panel. Let's start with the panel here. This is the Big Data panel. I'm John Cumming, the Editor-in-Chief of the Northern Miner. Uh, let me just introduce our panel, starting from uh, my left and going across here. We have Talia Dabby. She's the Director in the Technology Consulting and People and Organization Practices at PwC. And then we have Glenn Mullen. He's the President of the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, the PDAC. And he's also the president and CEO of Golden Valley Mines up in Valdor. In terms of mineral exploration of juniors, uh, Glenn has sort of seen it all and done it all. So we get the perspective of the juniors here. We have Humera Malik. She is the CEO and founder of Canvas Analytics. They're uh, right downtown here in Toronto. A few weeks ago, she won the 2018 RBC Canadian Entrepreneur Awards, Canadian Women Entrepreneurs Awards in the Ones to Watch category. Is that right? In case you're not familiar with Canvas Analytics, it is a leader in automating industrial operations through AI-powered predictive and analytics platforms. And then um, we've got Gord Stothert. He's Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at I Am Gold. He's a uh, min mining and mineral process engineer with extensive experience running you know, very large mines all over the world for uh, three decades. And at the end, we have uh, Shelby Yee, She's the co-founder and CEO of Rockmass Technologies. She's a technical, geotechnical background. 
rock mass technology is changing the way mines receive and use geotechnical data. Yeah, big data, it's a, a big concept. You know, many people will say we have the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago, the industrial revolution 200 years ago, and today we're leaving, living in the first few decades of the information revolution. I found it a very hard topic to wrap my head around what is hype and what is real and what is really going on and what could happen soon. So when I'm confused, I always go back to the Socratic method. What are the definitions? So maybe I'll start with you, Humera, if you could just define big data for us. Big data really is looking at all aspects of all the information that's coming out um, from every aspect of the business or every aspect of different processes or things that you run. So big data is, is consider it as if it's like cloud, where you have everything that you're doing today that's converted into some format of information that is being collected and can be measured. Mm -hmm. um, that is really big data. And you cannot define the intensity or the frequency because that's when the different tools come in that can be applied into big data. But it's really all of that information that's being generated that can be measured is really all the big data is. Right, right. And some of the other sort of buzzwords of this decade, you've got the Internet of Things, if you could define that, and then machine learning and AI. Just starting off with the definitions, then we can get into the mining. So the definitions of AI and machine learning I'll come to first because the people use this anonymously, but really artificial intelligence is nothing new that we're doing today. It's just that the techniques that are being used and the methods that have been developed, they are new and new. So really machine learning has existed forever. Artificial intelligence is an advanced way of using the mathematical ways as well as applying engineering around it through which we have developed different algorithms that we have been using like the machine learning algorithms now going into AI where more advanced algorithms or things are being used. That's really artificial intelligence. Uh, the application of artificial intelligence is when you actually take the mathematical equations and you, the algorithms that you build, and then the engineering that you do around it so that it develops a level of intelligence that can be applied so that you can start to draw certain inferences, really that's, that's truly artificial intelligence, that is. Mm -hmm. um, Internet of Things, whole other side, it's things that can, everything is now being connected. Yes. So Internet of Things is really about where everything from, uh, you know, if you put some sort of a connectivity mechanism on this batch, and then you can connect it into in any kind of an environment where this starts to actually transmit any information. So Internet of Things is all about connected things. It's about connecting the washer and the dryer at home to actually your refrigerator, to like taking the smallest of the equipments and devices that we carry. Everything that's being connected to the internet, the big cloud, where it's communicating back and forth, that's really the internet of things. Right. Now, let's jump into the more practical side of things. Gord, you're literally getting production reports every day from all over the world. How is big data in your life right now when you're operating mines? I think for us, it's still a little bit of an infancy. You know, certainly since even the 70s or 80s on the, on the processing side, You've used elements of AI, process control, and feed forward, and more static systems of that nature to, to handle, uh, handle the processing of ores. But it's certainly, the level of data is getting pushed further upstream all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the other big generator of, of large amounts of data, 
certainly has been the exploration side and, and all the exploration data that comes out. So you have sort of the two ends of the process, mm -hmm. but in between it hasn't been quite so much. It, equipment has become more sophisticated, so haul trucks have a thousand and one sensors on them and they're monitoring all parts of the equipment. Mm -hmm. Some of that data is collected, it isn't necessarily transmitted and, and very often is not used. Right. Um, I think that's where we're starting to see it. You know, where I see it these days is, 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 is combining a lot of the measurement systems, creating dashboards that I can look at to see how the operations are doing on a daily basis, year to date, month to date, quarter to date, uh, all of that good information and try and track that and overlay it with cost information so we can understand how we're doing economically as well as production. And Shelby, uh, you have specific experience with sensors in on machines and on personnel. What is the state of the art uh, with sensors in operating mines? Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a lot of, I would say, opportunity in that space because there are a lot of sensors being built for other industries. Like you look at the automotive industry and there's a lot of sensors that can be applied to mining that we can use and a big opportunity that we're moving towards is having applied data. So we have very specific processes within mining. How can we use these sensors to collect very specific information that's useful that, like you're saying, you can put on a dashboard and immediately view without having to do a lot of manipulation and, and time-consuming work with the, the sensors and the original output that they provide. Just going through the panel here. Glenn, is big data too big for juniors? Can, can juniors get into the big data space, especially on the exploration side? It's the opposite end of the spectrum. So for the PDAC, many, most of our members are actually junior mining companies, not majors or producers. Right. And so the interest definitely becomes manipulating large data sets, geoscience, and trying to find something of value that has either been overlooked or that hasn't been explored before. So large data sets, but not on brownfields or mine sites, but on huge tracts of land. So mm -hmm. that's where the opportunity is in the earliest exploration. Right. Our last panel member here, Talia, maybe you could just speak a little bit about who is involved in the workforce with this new kind of big data technology? What kind of people are uh, being brought into companies? Yeah, so I think it's a theme that's come up through all the presentations and the other panels just around how big data and technology in general is really changing the people that we need and the people that are going to be supporting us from a mining perspective and any organization. If you just look at financial services over the last three years, they've hired more IT roles than they did financial roles. And that's not going to be different from a mining perspective. And so it's still needing that operational side. So we talk about how those jobs are going to change, but it's really upskilling those operational the operational side of our the folks that we have today. And some of their jobs will change and we might not need everybody, but we do still need to understand how things work. And then bringing in people who really understand data, IoT, machine learning, AI, to bring the side of actually um, using those technologies. So I think it's kind of twofold. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me just throw this open to the whole panel here. What would you consider sort of low-hanging fruit in uh, the big data world that we think automated trucks or something like that would be fairly straightforward, but low-hanging fruit in big data. Yeah, I, you know, I think automation of, the, of a lot of the different mining processes is low-hanging fruit in terms of automation, in terms of big data. Uh, I think it's understanding your ore bodies better so you can truly optimize them. And we have the concept of, of zero waste or, or clean mining. Obviously, ideally, you'd like to extract only the thing of value and nothing more. Right. and walk away with just that element. We're still a ways from that, 
but that all goes to optimization. You've got to understand every time you touch the rock in whatever form that is, from your initial drill hole through the last time you pump it out to the tailings pond, mm -hmm. uh, the more information you can extract from that, useful information, the opportunity really comes to optimize that process. I think big data can be used in several ways. You have to determine a path. Whatever you can measure and you can analyze and drive results from, that's how we look at big data. Then you look at our, each process, and the first thing you look at is, you know, you're collecting data and now you can visualize things, but now can we start to optimize it? And then from there you begin the journey towards, now can we automate it? So that's the way we look at it is, if you have data, can you collect it into rich information that can be used? Mm -hmm. So converting it into rich information, you don't immediately go towards automation because you have to first understand. So it's called state modeling. You kind of understand the state of things, what's happening. Mm -hmm. From there, you go into optimization, and then you go into automation. Mm -hmm. And then from automation, certain things can be completely created into autonomous operations. Mm -hmm. Can we start to draw inferences where nobody has to go in and make certain changes? Can we start to create autonomous operations because in my opinion, humans are built for a much higher level function. So just like how we're creating autonomous cars, can we start to create autonomous operations as well? So that you know, we're, we're basically more engineers and more IT folks, more people who are actually building those functions into creating autonomous operations in a perfect world. That's the use of data. The low-hanging fruit is obviously creating energy efficiencies. Those should be the kind of targets that we should be developing, optimizing operations where we're creating efficiencies throughout each operations and setting those targets and setting the bar high for those targets really is kind of some of the low-hanging fruit. Right. How do you uh, save energy with big data at a mine? Like, what specifically do you do? There's a million and one things. That, <laughs> uh, we're sort of big hammer people. We tend to design our processes around the least common denominator. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll design a, a mill around the hardest rock that you're ever going to see. But the, the mills today tend to be more sophisticated. You can, you can feed more rock if it's softer, or you can slow the mill down to get a more efficient grinding on, on certain type of rock. Mm -hmm. Historically, we haven't had that subtlety. But understanding, you know, using feed-forward data, feed information from, from blast hole drilling, from, from mining, uh, from fragmentation, you know, online uh, fragmentation analysis as, as it's coming into the system, you can really start to tune the equipment so you're actually putting efficient energy into the grinding <coughs> process, which is the biggest consumer of energy, of third-party energy uh, that, that any mine uses. Mm -hmm. So that's a fairly obvious one. Shelby? I would say in terms of looking at low-hanging fruit, there's very advanced processes of the mining cycle, especially in the mineral processing side, yet at the same operation you can have people recording data with pen and paper. And these are very <laughs> skilled engineers that you're paying a lot of money to do this, and the time that it takes to do the collection and transfer is, adds up quite a bit. So if we can streamline this data collection process and improve the data quality, whether this is through consistency, through precision, to input into this model, then that's a, a pretty low-hanging fruit to just <laughs> get away from pen and paper. That's today. What, what about, say, five years out? What do you think is going to surprise people or some new technology that is just uh, in the birthing stage now, but everyone's going to adopt quickly, like the way these uh, changes happen so quickly in uh, technology? Shelby would say sensors, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, for, you know, I, I have a fair knowledge on LiDAR sensors. Um, a lot of the, some of the LiDAR sensors that we use for surveying and such are stationary. Those will become mobile and we will be able to collect data on a continuous basis and that provides an opportunity to put them on 
trucks instead of having people set them up. That would be my perspective. Right, right. One of the promises of big data is you get these sort of unexpected correlations that human brain can't really see. Think of, you know, say Target. They find if a woman's in her starting her second trimester of pregnancy, she'll start she'll switch her soap from scented to non-scented and buy more cotton swabs, and then Target will send out a crib email or something like that. So there's these odd little things. Have you found, working with big data, any kind of odd correlations that come up? If everyone comes in one minute before their shift, there's more accidents? Or I've always find that kind of intriguing. Yeah, I mean, certainly on the health and safety side, looking at a lot of different factors, where in the cycle, day shift, end shift, you know, first shift of, of a cycle, last shift of a cycle, where in the year. I mean, intuitively, you, you, you sort of feel some of these things exist. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting getting into the data and having people do the analysis. <coughs> and, and then the ones that aren't necessarily obvious, but when, when you tease them out of the information, it's, it's quite intriguing. It, it forces you to sort of rethink some of, some of your, your thinking before. We, we were using a package a couple of years ago. It was an outsourced package. I, I, I know we're not using it now by the name of Mondo Brain, and it was, it was very interesting in that you just fed it in large, large sets of data, and it would, it would find nodes of correlation between very odd sets of data. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it was, it was obviously an incidental correlation. Quite often, after you sat down and thought about it, you could figure out why it was correlating. It isn't necessarily useful, right. but you know, once in a while you get a bit of an aha. One for me that I've always looked at is, certainly at the expiration stage, we do 30 element ICPs on every sample, and basically 29 of those elements never see the light of day again. Hmm. Uh, that information does have value, being done for a reason. Right. Back analysis of that information may help you at processing, it may help you at mining, may help you at the environmental stage somewhere down the line, it may help you even further at the expiration stage and pointing vectors at, at other potential targets. So that, that's a really interesting one. I think of something like the city of Boston where they'll use the Google uh, Android system where they'll figure out where the potholes are that day because the cars all slow down in one spot. Really interesting little things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have the guys plot up every downshift of a truck off of the dispatch system because you can capture every mm -hmm. time your truck downshifts. If they're downshifting in a spot they're not supposed to be downshifting, yeah. you probably have a road problem there. Right, right. And uh, maybe just back up a bit into the exploration phase with Glenn. Maybe you could talk about big data modeling, modeling deposits. I think of the, the pitfalls, too. You have, say, Rubicon Minerals with their F2 deposit. They didn't seem to look at the core enough with human eyes. It was all done through computers, and they ended up with the folded structure oriented entirely the wrong direction. And there's a case where you really needed people looking at core. So where do things stand with deposit modeling? Well, that's a double-edged sword, obviously, in that you know, Rubicon is an obvious one to focus on because of the recent media that was attached to that story. But in terms of both your previous comments, so the low-hanging fruit from the explorer's perspective would be drilling. So that's the single biggest expense incurred by most of our members in trying to find a deposit. And there's a lot of value that can still be extracted from that beyond the ob obvious, and in particular with historical drilling. So the exploration geologist will look at that and say, 
you know, calc alkaline, felsic, porphyry, and so on, and think that's it, that's all. The engineer will look at that and say, well, we're noticing that dr drill bits are wearing down more quickly in this type of rock versus that type of rock. Mm -hmm. And the big data component really becomes quite interesting from that perspective, from the engineering perspective. So a lot of the initiative that's being done on the exploration spectrum right now is in looking at all of that historical data and trying to derive more benefit from it. How tricky is it to bring in that historical data into modern? It sounds like a lot of work. Well, I think that's part of the ongoing initiative. Just about every public company, mining company, consulting company, or to some degree going through the digitization of historical data sets anyway. So that's ongoing. And certainly with the PDAC, part of our interfacing with governments is to encourage them to mm -hmm. expedite that process. So exploration assessment, digital files, and the collection of that across Canada, that's a large part of our current strategies with government discussions. So right. certainly there's an initiative to collect that data in digital forms right across Canada and to make that available for the greater benefit. But you're right. always going to have people looking at it from above. It's the human interface that, you know, the geophysical people amongst us would say garbage in, garbage out. So. Mm -hmm. It still comes down to the quality of the data and the interpretations that are derived from that. Right. Are there specific, uh, say, member companies that you think do a bang-up job with data analysis, or they've had a success lately? I'm going to sound like a paid promoter when I start throwing out <laughs> the names, but there are some obvious ones, mostly on the consulting and technical services side, who've really done a great job, not just at our conventions, but in the international forums and trying to deploy Canadian technology and various operations throughout the planet. And certainly our senior most uh, producers are better equipped to mention specific brand names and right. consulting groups, but process technology and uh, certainly the the wear and tear side, the costing side of mining is paramount. Right, right. I'll tell you, uh, one of the great things about PwC, they're involved in so many industries, so they're always doing cross uh, studies between di different industries. How does mining rank in the uh, use of big data, particularly amongst other resource uh, sectors like oil and gas usually leads us in things? Yeah. I mean, I think all organizations have a lot of data. It's whether you're using it from a big data perspective or harvesting the actual insights from it. From the research and from where we understand the mining industry is, it's kind of up and coming. It's not far off. And I think people, we've had those conversations even today just around, you know, we're at the tipping point. Not everyone's invested, but I think we're further ahead than we give ourselves credit for. And it's really going to come down to, you know, are we actually having some quick wins and some pilot wins, like coming back to your earlier question, do we need to really wait to have sensors on everything or do we leverage some of the data to actually demonstrate some process efficiencies and demonstrate some wins to put some money back into some of the bigger investments around AI and other areas. So I wouldn't say, I think you kind of alluded to it, that mining's at the, at the forefront, but I don't think it's far off and at the end of the day, you're gonna be competing against the Googles and the Microsofts for the same talent so as far as fast as you can catch up, it's going to be in everyone's best interest. Do you have any particular not bias, but uh, between building up your own IT team for big data or outsourcing it, or how do you keep on top of this? So I think there's probably an, like a short-term or interim strategy and a longer term. I think where everyone's sitting now, from a resourcing perspective, you know, or is someone coming out of school with a big data background or a data analytics background going to necessarily pick a mining company? I think someone said earlier, you know, is mining sexy enough to be selected? 
and are they going to pick you know, a Google or a Microsoft when we're in the Toronto environment? So there's still some cultural shift and some changing around attraction that needs to happen. So in the short term, it's probably relying a little bit more heavily on the contract um, consulting model because that's where the resources are. They're really equipped to train people and to give them that career progression. But really focusing on what that medium and long-term plan is because you do need those strategic skills in-house, especially when you're talking about your data and your insights and what your competitive advantage is. And it just might take some time to be able to be able to recruit those people. And I think even if you look at Barrick as an example from a training perspective, they've partnered with Cisco um, and a Nevada college to actually create a training program. And right now, there's not necessarily training programs in-house across all the mines in order to um, kind of upskill people or give people that flexibility to learn skills as they grow. And that's probably something that the mining sector and maybe even work mines collaborating together will need to look at and with some of the universities potentially or the colleges. Right, right. And uh, just another question for the whole panel here. One of the keys to big data is bigger and bigger data sets. So it's so important to share data between these sort of siloed parts of the company. Shelby uh, alluded to that in an email to me. And then, you know, uh, different operations within a company and then other companies sharing data. I know IM Gold has spearheaded a, a cost-sharing program with a few other gold producers, which is very unusual. Can you just talk about sharing both within one company uh, in their silos and then with multiple mines, how you centralize the data at head office and then sharing between companies. So that's, that's a lot to jump on there. Well, it's, it's um, I mean, you spoke to a couple initiatives. I mean, just sharing with it within a site is, is, is a victory. If you can get the mine to share with the mill, is a good start. Um, get maintenance involved. Uh, as I spoke to earlier, uh, for us layering in the financial data, the, the, the costing data at the same time, uh, that's where you really start to add value and, and turn the business into a business. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, it's connectivity of systems and, and sometimes taking some pretty disparate systems and finding a way to first present the data and then start to analyze the data proactively to use mm -hmm. it to make decisions. And you've got to start somewhere. I mean, you spoke earlier about the different disparity of, of data sets. I mean, some of it's pretty ugly. But you have to start somewhere and, and, and get it working. The program you alluded to is something uh, we got involved with originally at the urging of our board is, is benchmarking. How do you benchmark internally? How do you benchmark externally mm -hmm. with costs? You know, we originally went through a consulting company and, and, and more recently have sort of set up just a, a nonprofit consortium almost, if you will, to share data that allows us to input our, our quarterly cost of production data uh, and the system itself anonymizes it. So you can see where you sit relative to your peer group, mm -hmm. but you can't specifically identify the peers right. from the data set. You can identify your own position within the data set, but, but you can't point at one data set and say that, that that's them. Um, at the end of the day, we produce a product that's saleable in a world market. We don't actually compete that many that much for, for customers of the product. We compete for shareholders, we compete for property. Right. But once you have a mine, that's sort of set. There's a limited world out there working on it. If you can work together to improve your, your profitability or understand your, your operation better, 
there's value in that. There really yeah. is value in that. That's definitely a gold company perspective. If you're yeah. uranium or graphite, everyone's at each other's yeah. throats. <laughs> but uh, you can sell as much gold you, as you can produce. It's a journey that you undertake, really. And it's, you have to set the path. The end goal is actually you know, what cost am I producing it at and how can I improve my margins. But the journey that you take is actually, because right now, the, wherever we go in, we see lots of siloed sources of data. It's really bringing it together first. So creating the right set of data lakes and data pipelines that you can start to create either by these are my energy pipelines these are my equipment pipelines and these are my and then connecting those back into your financial systems into your erp systems so connecting the operational side with the it side that's kind of a huge achievement to have even at one site level then you take it beyond one site and you take it into a multiple site level I think we're far from sharing those outside of the silos of within the organization as yet. I think the, that's kind of the five-year journey that you were asking about, is really creating the right set of data lakes and data pipelines and associate them back into and, and actually breaking the silos between the operational side and the IT side. That's kind of the five-year journey once we get there, I think. That's really where we'd be start looking at how do we create shared set of services. We're already thinking about it and trying to work with some very progressive people, but uh, folks that are out there in, in different industries. But it's really when we get to that point is then you start looking at how do you create shared set of services from that. Right. So say the sharing within a company how much of it is a technical problem and how much of it is, it, is, a, is it a mindset problem, would you say, like 90% technical? Or I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> People have their turf. People have their turf and I've certainly dealt with a number of individuals over my career that are very protective of their information. They will feed you what they want you to know. They don't want you, they don't want the big boss in Toronto giving them a call up and saying, what's wrong with his valve? Right. That, that isn't, it's perceived to not be a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's how you use the information. I, the scope of what I'm in charge of, of looking at is larger, and I try to keep it large and, and not get too granular and, it, mm -hmm. and keep it within the organization. You only need one or two successes with the sharing, and you will, you will get buy-in. That sort of vision of how you run your little uh, fiefdom within the operation, I think it'll always be there to a certain extent. but. You break it down with the right tools and you just figure a different way of working, uh, you'll get the buy-in over time. Right. How about pitfalls of big data? I mean, you can easily blow a lot of money on technology or uh, hiring people that waste your time. What are the pitfalls, would you say? I mean, one certainly that everybody on our side is, is always concerned about with Internet of Things and, and big data is, is just the security of the data. Right. Uh, can somebody from outside come in and uh, steal something of value for, from you or conversely, maliciously cause you some, some problems. So that, that, that is a concern for us. Right. Maybe, how does the whole blockchain movement fit in with uh, big data in terms of security? I think it, I mean, it improves the security of transactions, but it doesn't necessarily improve the security of the data itself. Right. Uh, if that data has uh, notional value to it, and gets out, that can cause you some problems. Um, and blockchain won't do anything if somebody's trying to come in and you know, reverse one of your mills in the middle of operation. Right. Are you all familiar with uh, cases where something's gone terribly wrong, someone's uh, extorted someone? A lot of it's sort of private uh, because of big data exposing vulnerability. You're... I've heard stories, but I don't know specific <laughs> cases. 
Right, right. Okay. Maybe just on a personal note here, it's very interesting. We have two women entrepreneurs starting tech companies that have a mining side. Maybe just, if you could both tell us how, how you got into this, or it's kind of an interesting thing that you get the mix of the Silicon Valley uh, startup with something traditional like uh, Canadian mining. Sure. So my background is in geotechnical engineering, and I sort of saw a good piece of technology that had commercial potential. So, I mean, the difference between Silicon Valley and, and mining there couldn't be more different. I mean, the approach is totally different. The dress code is totally different. And even working with mining corporate versus mining operations, you could, there's similar, you know, there's just contrast between all of them. Do you, yeah. Okay. I, uh, I had a company that did instrumentation in large industrial scale environments and I just saw an opportunity on the table and I thought I just don't like the idea of leaving this information when we do instrumentation and you start to actually collect all the data and nothing happens afterwards so that kind of just bothered me and I went out and I tried to solve a data problem I ended up with with this platform but I was kind of just going out and saying there's so much information that can be used, and I see big consultants and toolkits and things being applied and lots of projects being done, but no outcome, no repeatability. So I, I got together with a bunch of really smart folks that knew what AI was. I learned from them and then spent a couple of years doing and, and, uh, research and building this, mm -hmm. um, and that's how I ended up in this environment. But I was actually in the industrial operations before. Right, right. So do you tap into a whole different venture capital group that Mining, typical mining people wouldn't go into? No, actually our latest investor is Google. Oh, so uh -huh. no, we didn't. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to see that, you know, how many people actually would be looking at the industrial operations side um, as, as kind of the next big wave that's coming in. So no, it's actually very, very different, not the traditional mining folks. No. Right. Okay, we've got a question here from the audience. Uh, can you ever have too much data? Anyone can answer that. Glenn? Um, <clears throat> I think that's one of the biggest risks is just data fatigue. So there's a general assumption that more is better. And more isn't necessarily better, but it can be if it's well-guided, if there's a strategy to it. So certainly that guidance is a prerequisite to even assuming that more is better and bigger and bigger is leading to progressively better systems. Not necessarily. Right. Another question, uh, how do you cost out the service of making all that data meaningful, and is there an ongoing cost associated with it? How much does that add to an ounce of gold production? Uh, I mean, that's, that's, it's actually a great question. I, I would, as I sort of think about it, most of the systems uh, we purchase today or we install today uh, have the collection systems, uh, the data collection sensors and, and systems are already installed uh, for the functioning of that specific unit, uh, to optimize the functioning of that unit. What you're talking about really is, is then tapping into those sensors and logging that data over time to understand if there's something more you can get out of the information. The actual collection and, and warehousing of that information and analytics of the information, uh, it does cost some, some money, but it, the big scope of what we spend things on if, if I can save two pennies at an open pit mining operation per ton, that's real dollars over time. So it really is worth it if, if, you, can, if you can see some benefit yes. and you're not going down too many rabbit holes on the way there and, and wasting a lot of money. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I guess one last question. We'll kind of wrap it up here. 
Do you see expert systems augmenting or replacing geologists in selecting borehole locations to reduce uncertainty? Is that possible yet? Anyone? Glenn? Uh, no. Future. <laughs> No, no because I think there's still a prerequisite to have that strategy and the guidance at the top. So certainly there's a benefit and there's an inherent benefit to having all of that data and generally available, but um, there'll never be, I don't think there'll ever be a replacement for the, the person at the top that's ultimately responsible. That's good, yeah. Okay, well let's end it there. Just a round of applause for Talia, Humera, Glenn, Gord, and Shelby. And that does it for this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. And as always, you can help out the podcast by liking it, sharing it, subscribing to it. All those things help us uh, reach new people. So that's it for now. Bye-bye. <laughs>